Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. Welcome back to our second installment through our series of the book of Joel. Uh, If you've missed last week, I encourage you to go to our church website, find our our sermon library and and, uh, catch up and and, uh, maybe check out other sermons. Uh, We have quite an extensive sermon library there on our church church website, so feel free to check that out. But yeah, if you've missed last week, uh, basically uh, we've worked through the first chapter of of Joel. Joel is in the Old Testament. It's it's prophetic poetry. And Joel introduces to us in, in that first chapter, there's this major crisis going on, an invasion of locusts. Okay, And I really do think it was a, a real uh, plague of, of locusts, of grasshoppers, but I also think it applies to a real human army from the north, like Babylon or the Assyrians or or something like that. And it also refers to something in the future. I'm very open to uh, there's some sort of future fulfillment that's that's actually yet to happen. Um, so uh, pr- prophetic poetry, it's filled with a lot of images. It's uh, we have to sit and think on on the different lines. And, and the thing about this prophetic poetry is that, yes, it's meant to be read, but it's also, it's meant to be experienced. And And uh, Joel is going to be using imagery, and he's going to uh, be really going after emotions, and and he's really going after stuff uh, to to grab our attention. So um, along with all of that, uh, with the locusts and everything, we are are also introduced to this expression called the day of the Lord. And typically this phrase, the day of the Lord, it's reserved for the big day when, when God shows up. Okay, it's it's this uh, it's this big day. It's it's a common phrase in the in the Old Testament, and it's used multiple times. It's used in multiple ways. It refers to more than just one day. And also, what you need to know is that it doesn't just belong to a twenty-four hour period of of time. Okay, it's not bound to that. Some of these biblical authors, when they use this expression, uh, they're using it simply. They're conceptualizing it sim- simply. Uh, but others, there's there's way more to it. They're, they're referring to major judgment by God, a major rescue event. Uh, but in some, Yahweh's day, the day of the Lord, it is a big day. And there's, there's lots of imagery associated with, with the day of the Lord. Uh, we'll run into things like, uh, like military terms, like an, like an army invasion. Sometimes there's geologic uh, things like earthquakes and trembling, atmospheric terms with darkness and thick clouds. There's emotions of terror and fear and dismay and panic. There's imagery of famine and labor pains. And like in Joel, there's this this locust invasion. There's a lot going on, a lot associated with the day of the Lord. With all of this imagery, there's also calls for lament and, and repentance. And there's also messages of, of hope and restoration. And ultimately, the day of the Lord expression, ultimately, um, the final concept or version of it is about... Jesus, when when Jesus returns, 
someday in the future, when Jesus returns, uh, his second coming, the day of the Lord, Jesus's day, which we are all looking forward to as, as believers. So as we get into Joel chapter 2 this morning, uh, we are going to start off with, with Joel's announcement of the day of the Lord. But first, let me throw up the outline of our message today. Uh, we're looking at uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. You can go ahead and take a look at the flow there. Um, then uh, let's, uh, let's read it, let's listen to it, and uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come great and strong, the like of whom have never been nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots, over mountaintops they leap. Like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble. Like a strong people set in battle array. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, though they lunge between the weapons. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter into the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon glow, grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber, 
and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give heritage to reproach, that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Heavenly Father, as we dig into your word today, I just ask that you would make it come alive. Heavenly Father, let the images speak to us, God. Uh, may, may we grasp what we need to, to get a hold of today. Uh, Father, do not be far from us, but just be close, be here. Put this stuff into our hearts and minds. Uh, God, speak to us today. Uh, we want to hear from you. Lead us on the right path. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we get started here, Joel calls for the blowing of the shofar, the, the ram's horn in the city of Jerusalem. In ancient Israel, there are multiple reasons to blow that ram's horn. In this case, it's to sound the alarm. And this alarm is to make everybody tremble. God's big day is coming, people. In fact, it is near. Uh, it is it is right here. It is arriving. And to set the mood, Joel gives us some, some in imagery of darkness and, and gloom. This day is a day of clouds and, and just complete, total darkness. And, and like the dawn moving over the mountains, okay, the locusts, are arriving. There, there's little bugs. They're flying in. They're creeping in here. And now uh, the locust army, this invasion, they're personified as a people group. Uh, they are great. They are strong. And, you know, we've never seen anything like this before, Joel says. In fact, you'll never see anything like this again. So you just have to imagine this is one of the darkest days ever, very gloomy outside. And on this day, the locusts arrive. But out of the darkness, fire is in front of them. And as they move along, flames blaze behind them. And Joel uses this before and after effect. The, the land in front of them is described like the Garden of, of Eden. But as they come through, they just bring devastation and they turn the land into a desert wasteland before and after. The locusts, they just keep coming through. What do they look like? Well, you're invited to use your mind's eye here in verse 4. Their appearance is like that of horses and they gallop like war horses. Okay, Joel says they're like war horses. One of my books that I used to study for this sermon series, uh, they um, they gave me a, a little a little blurb, and I'm going to share it with you this morning. So I want you to think about a grasshopper, um, but also kind of think like how an ancient would would think. Okay, grasshoppers, locusts. They they have the face of a horse, the eyes of an elephant, the neck of a bull, the horns of a stag, the chest of a lion, the belly of a scorpion, the wings of an eagle, the thighs of a camel, the legs of an ostrich, and the tail of a serpent. Okay. Like war horses galloping through. They're, they're coming. 
they're coming. Joel continues with, with military language. They bound on the tops of mountains. Their sound is like the sounds of chariots and the sound of fiery flames consuming stubble. And, and it's this mighty army deploying for war. The locusts are coming. They're coming. And so Joel's day of the Lord just includes this massive attack, this massive army, this advancing uh, that, that's advancing over the mountains, and, and they're coming, and, and they're bounding over the mountains. And Joel says, um, you know, even though chariots belong on the plain, he's like, it sounds like chariots are just running about up in the mountains. These are mountain chariots, okay? And they're bouncing, they're moving, they're coming. Next in verse 6, we get a glimpse of, of the, the victims, the people. It says, nations writhe in horror before them. All faces turn pale. Okay. All right. Like, like when you get a 95-mile-per-hour a fastball to the wrist, okay, you writhe in pain. Okay. The people, are, the people experiencing this, they cannot control their body functions and, and – um, you know, they're under this stress response. Their faces are going pale. In verse 7, finally, the locusts, they're here, and they attack. And it's overwhelming. They arrive like warriors, Joel says. There's a sense of relentless attack. They keep coming. They keep coming. They're never stopping. They're relentless. Let's read it. They attack as warriors attack. They scale walls as men of war do. Each goes on his own path, and they do not change their course. They do not push each other. Each proceeds on his own path. They dodge the arrows, never stopping. They storm the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like thieves. I have a copy here of the National Geographic magazine from December 1915. And uh, one of their, their articles here uh, is Jerusalem's Locust Plague. It was one of their highlight stories in this issue. Uh, back in 1915, uh, in, in, in late February, early March of 1915, uh, locust swarms started to arrive to Palestine and Israel, Syria regions and and this infestation just brought an incredible amount of damage to the area. And uh, yeah, John D. Whiting, he was there. He was recording all of this. Uh, and he, he writes this. Attention was drawn to them by, by the sudden darkening of the bright sunshine. And then by a veritable shower of their excretions which fell thick and fast and resembled those of mice, especially noticeable on the white macadam roads. At times, their elevation was in the hundreds of feet. At other times, they came down quite low, detached members alighting. The clouds of them would be so dense as to appear quite black, with edges vignettes till they thinned down and faded away into the clear blue sky around. So the article goes on to talk about how they, they came from the north and, and how these, these locusts, the, the females, would lay their eggs wherever they could. 
they would land on on the soil sometimes like even really really hard ground it didn't matter they figured out a way the females will will bore down into the soil and deposit their eggs and and uh, the article said that in one square meter about 65,000 to 75,000 eggs can be found and they actually they they issued a proclamation that every male uh, in in the Jerusalem area between the ages of 16 and 60 you're required to go out and help dig up the eggs there was like a quota that you had to go out and, and meet everyone had to go out and participate and 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 try to try to destroy these these eggs before they hatch and you know what birds came out you know all these locusts you know birds were coming they were having a feast and uh john d whiting he he makes this comment uh that when chicken you know chickens love locusts and uh when chickens eat a lot of locusts it turns yellow chicken yolk deep red and he he has a story in here he remarks about being served an omelet uh, and he noticed the the color difference, right? So so there you go. Anybody who needs to do a science fair project, get some chickens and feed them locusts, and and then see what color what color egg egg yolk comes out. Uh, but anyways, yeah, locusts. Um, it, it's it's a great article. Uh, if anybody wants to check it out, you know, I'll let you borrow this uh, really old National Geographic. Uh, but, but anyways, yeah. Um, locusts cause such a big mess. And as Joel writes, they storm the city, they cover the walls, they climb the house, they enter through the windows. Uh, John D. Whiting of National Geographic, he actually references Joel. It's like, this is exactly how the plague works. They're everywhere. There's no place to hide. The locusts will find you. They keep coming. They keep coming. You try to remove them, and they keep coming back. And basically, here in Joel, with this whole big locust swarm and all of that, this big calamity, it's wrapped up with the arrival of the day of the Lord. So Joel, he he switches to cosmological language here as as god arrives the earth quakes before them the the sky shakes the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars cease in their shining okay again think like an ancient the sky you the sky doesn't you know the earth and the sky like these things don't shake all right but the sky shakes when yahweh shows up and Yahweh does show up in verse 11 the Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army okay in the presence of his army now when we read through this quickly we might miss what we just read but this is actually big news because right here in verse 11, we find out that God is behind all of this. And this actually shakes us up. God's like, this is my army, right? 
Okay, so so Joel's audience, like like the people of God, the people who who are elected as God's chosen people, Joel's audience and and us too, like we cannot one hundred percent assume that God will always bring one hundred percent protection here. And you know what? This just sucks the air right out of the room. This verse, it sucks the hope right out of the air. Like, like there's this devastating locust plague going on, and we find out that God is behind this invasion. The Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. Those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? The day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? So who? Who's going to win? You or God? Right now, in, in Joel, this is almost like an anti-Romans 8.31 scenario. If God is not for us, who can't be against us? <laughs> the day of the Lord is terrible. It's dreadful. Who can possibly survive this day? And we don't know when Joel was written. We don't know. We don't have a tight context for it. But you know what? I think it's better off. It's better that way for us because here at verse 11, we are just, we, we are forced to wrestle with our calamities, okay? We are invited right now to consider the climate of our own times where we're forced to, to view our own lives, our mistakes, our missteps, our bad decisions. And you know what? This is, this, this is a part of the, the Lenten cycle, the, the Lenten tradition and practice, because we are called to reflect on the log that's in our own eye, our, our own sin, our weakness, our lack of control, our limitations, our imperfections. And again, God's people, the people of Abraham, God's chosen, God's elected, they, they, have, they have something special going on, but they blew it big time. They drifted away from the life that's wrapped up in God. And now the day of the Lord is here. God's behind this calamity and devastation. What are they to do? But then something delightful happens in verse 12. God speaks. It's surprising. God says, even now, even now. And we need to remember that God is independent from us. He doesn't need us. And he, and, and, and only he, he is the only one who gets to say even now. And what's happening here in scripture is that God is graciously putting an option on the table. God is independent from us. We need to start there. God is not bound by what we do or don't do. Even if 
Israel got mixed up in, in their idea of what it means to be a blessed people. Uh, they, they get mixed up in their ideas of covenant, the ideas of, of, of God as king and what it means to represent this kingdom on the earth. Even if Israel gets all mixed up in their special privileges, even if they, they got bound up in this hodgepodge of bad, false God worship, even if they fell into witchcraft and child sacrifice, even now, God doesn't say, I'm done with you. God says, even now. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with all, uh, with your fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, Joel continues, not just your clothes. And return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. This is a call to action to return back to God. And this isn't just a Lenten theme, okay, um, of, of recognizing sin and, and, turning, and, and, and turning back to Christ. Like this is the Christian life a daily turning to God, a daily returning to God with all of our heart. And so whatever you bring to the table, your sinful actions, your anxiety, your worry, your your idolatry of, of any kind, pride, misplaced anger, whatever you bring to the table, do you know that God has forgiveness on that table? Do you believe restoration is always still on the table? And Joel's like, who knows? Maybe God will will show reciprocity and turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. But what's key here? What's key here is that God doesn't relent because of us. It's all about who he is. I don't want you to miss uh, God's character here in this passage. God is great and gracious and, and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He is abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. This is who our God is. At the heart of the gospel is a God who wants to relate with us, to us. Relationship is so important. To God. And yes, our sinful actions get in the way of our relationship with God. But the thing behind those sinful actions, okay, if we're able to kind of go back and see what's behind all of this, it's unbelief. When we fail to believe in who God is, when we fail to believe in the goodness of the gospel that he personally came to rescue and renew creation in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, when we fail to see that he is in control, when we fail to see that he is sovereign, when when our vision gets cloudy and we, we forget that he's gracious, 
that he's compassionate, that he's slow to anger, that he's abounding in faithful love for us, if we're not believing in these things, if there are just even just the miniest, smallest lies about who God is, if we're not believing in who God is, when we fail to believe in who God is, we are going to carry about in our hearts, we are going to carry some amount of unbelief around. And that unbelief is what spins out anxiety, fear, wanting to be in control, right? The way to stop sinning is not behavior modification, okay? We're not dogs in some sort of obedience class. Like God has something way bigger and better for us. The way to stop sinning is to tackle the unbelief issues that we carry around in our hearts. The heart of the gospel is a God who just wants to relate to you. Relationship is so important to God. That's why God says, even now, return to me. Just, Just come back. Come back, child. So whatever you have going on in your life, God says, even now, turn to me with all your heart. Even now, like whatever whatever you have going on, like, like there is still this option. And verses 15 and, and 17 uncover this plan of return, which for, for Israel, it features a, a sacred fast and the gathering of community and prayer time. And, and Joel even gives them uh, the words to pray, uh, Dear God, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? So church, repentance means a change in your heart and mind that leads to a change in behavior. It is a process word. It takes time. It takes effort. Moving from unbelief to belief, it does take time. It takes things like our spiritual habits, Bible Bible reading, and things like prayer and worship. But I want you to know, and you, you can't miss this, The things that we do, it's always grounded in grace and our relationship with God. In Christ, you already have God's favor. You don't have to earn that. So it is is in this grace, it is in this wonderful relationship with the Lord. Take those steps. Take those steps of, of turning to God. Okay, Believe in the good news. Believe in the truth that brings about freedom. So what area in your life do you need to see unbelief shifting to belief? What area in your life is God calling you into belief? So church, as you rend your heart, as you tear your heart, it will be painful. But let, let me remind you, so is crucifixion. My, my good friend puts it this way. He says, if you want to live a resurrected life, that means something needs to
to die. And as we all know, it ain't easy for the self to die. But this is what Lent is all about. This is what the Christ life is all about. The old is going away and the new arrives. We say goodbye to the self, the old self, and every day we, we put on Jesus. We, we make that turn. We, we turn with all of our heart. We turn and we're in that relationship with God. Did you know the word Lent comes from an old English word that means springtime? So as you rend your heart, as you tear your heart, you say goodbye to the old. And it's all about bringing about that that springtime in your life, in your heart. Lent is, is turning your heart over from winter into spring. We're all about the new life in Christ all day, every day. And right now, in this moment, God gives you an option. He says, even now, you, even now, turn to me with all of your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, lead us on the path of repentance. Lead us in this process of turning to you. Father, it is, it is by your, your kindness that you, we are led to repentance. Thank you for, for who you are. May, may we repent and, and try to believe in your character, that you are good and gracious, that you are love. Help us to turn to you and, and get to know you better, Lord. Father, nations rage, kingdoms crumble, The earth melts away. There's judgment. There's wrath. There's distress. There's trouble. There's waste. There's desolation. There's gloom. But God, we turn to you. We lament. We repent. We believe in the good news that you are good news. Jesus, you are good news. You are enough. May we declare in our hearts today that you're our God. We're your people. Thank you for setting us free. We worship you today. In your name we pray. Amen.